Hello, everyone. Hello. Hi there. Hi. Are we ready to talk about foreign policy? You betcha. Every day. Yep. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is foreign policy and was recorded on December 18th, 2019. Here's who's helping us with this installment today. I'm John Burns, the uh, Foundation Director for Concerned Veterans for America Foundation, and I'm one of the leads on um, issue education for foreign policy in the network. I'm Tyler Koteski, and I'm the foreign policy analyst at Americans for Prosperity. And my name is Juliana Hershap, and I am the Director of Policy Engagement for Concerned Veterans for America. What I, what I want everyone to be able to do now is to really know uh, a little bit of your backstory and, and how you got involved in, in this particular priority initiative and, and why it's important to you. So we can start with you, John. Sure. I, as, you know, as many people in the network know, I'm a veteran of both the Army and the Marine Corps. I, I spent uh, a lot of time overseas, uh, Somalia, Iraq, Afghanistan. Uh, I responded to uh, to the first day of the global war on terror at Ground Zero in New York as a National Guardsman. Uh, so I've been deeply invested in foreign policy, uh, you know, where the rubber hits the road for, for well over 20 years. And additionally, I have a degree in foreign policy. So, um, you know, I, I've evolved my views over foreign policy. I was never quite what you'd call an interventionist, but I was a lot more eager about intervention before I spent so much time overseas, uh, before I watched... Uh, you know, from the day of the, that the current global war on terror that's still going on began, uh, you know, responded thinking about my three-month-old niece uh, to recently seeing her walk across the stage, graduate, and start college. Uh, she recently picked me up in her car for the first time in her life. Um, and knowing that she's eligible to serve in the military has really been a catalyst to changing my thinking about America's foreign policy and, and maybe talking to the people in the country about maybe they're rethinking, you know, how, what they want for their children and their brothers and sisters who, who are eligible to serve. Tyler, how about you? Well, I can't claim to have quite the uh, exciting backstory that John does, but uh, certainly as I started to become more politically active and engaged about 10 years ago, um, especially in the, the 2008 presidential election, uh, foreign policy was such an important issue for me then, um, just particularly seeing the way that the global war on terror was going um, and you know, seeing Iraq and Afghanistan turn into a quagmire and, and having kind of seen that transition from the uh, hope to pessimism sort of unfold in real time. And so it's I think just from that sort of early formative time in my own political development, it's been an important issue for me and something I've always uh, continued to be interested in over the years. So for me, uh, I spent eight years working on Capitol Hill. Um, both my parents served in the military. My mom deployed to um, Desert Storm. And so I've been around the military community for you know most of my life to some degree. And when I worked on Capitol Hill, I worked in veterans policy as well as defense policy. Um, not so much foreign policy, actually. But um, you know DOD policy as well as veterans policy is very, very impacted by um, – where and how we engage around the world. And I saw the very real consequences in that role um, of our foreign policy and um, the decisions and the lack of decisions that some of our leaders in Congress as well as um, in the executive branch were making um, and the real impacts that was having on um, 
just human lives and families, um, you know, in local communities. One thing that uh, I think surprised a lot of people when we first started talking about foreign policy is that we were talking about foreign policy at all. I think that took a lot of people by surprise. So the question I want to start off with is why? Why are we even involved in this in this issue? I think from a Concerned Veterans for America, Concerned Veterans for America Foundation stage, it's something that we've always cared about, right? It's it's part, core part of the things we talk about, those that affect our veterans and military uh, families and our military community. So whether it's it's seeing members of that military community exposed to risk overseas unnecessarily, which is happening, to the impact that it has on veterans' health care going forward, this is a you know, a key decision point for things that affect the lives of, of current military members and veterans. So it's a natural for CVA and CVA Foundation to be in the mix, but it's also something that affects taxpayers and it affects citizens. Uh, it affects our national stature. It affects our national, there's all kinds of things that this is one of the key core constitutional functions of the American government. And yet it's something that has almost, in terms of public input, the least amount of discussion um, it's just kind of assumed that what the elites say, you know, what, what somebody dictates from a think tank or, or from, uh, you know, Foggy Bottom or from some other part of the foreign policy establishment is accepted by the American public as, as you know, de facto, you know, reasoning. Uh, we go with that. And I think it's, you know, it's something that we as an organization want to change America's minds about how much input they should have. I would think uh, John hit it right on the head in terms of the disconnect between public opinion and a lot of the decision makers in this space. I mean, we've got poll after poll showing a huge disconnect, um, and and you know, majorities of the American public who want things like uh, you know closing the book on Afghanistan and 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 refocusing back here at home, um, and 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 reprioritizing towards really uh, more of our our. our core national interests, which we can, you know, get into more specifically later. But I think uh, the American public in general is just tired of being told that, you know, these faraway places that aren't, uh, you know, immediately obvious why they're important to be sacrificing for are somehow these uh, vital security priorities that we have to remain in for decades. I think one question that, you know, follows with you know, why are we involved in this is, I think naturally it goes to, so what, what do we even stand for here? What is our network position on foreign policy from, and I, I, I guess I don't need you to get into the specifics. You know, we, we definitely don't want to talk about any bills or anything, but from a philosophical 50,000 foot level, what is our foreign position on foreign policy? You know, in general, uh, you know, one of our kind of mutually reinforcing principles in this network is, or in this community rather, is uh, openness. And I think that informs a lot of our approach to where the default, our, our default choice to engage with the world should be. Um, you know, certainly we, we kind of in, in, in the uh, words of Washington's farewell address, you know, it's, we support uh, commerce and, and friendship with nations. And then when it, gets into questions like war or entangling alliances that we might not need to be entering into, that's when we kind of put the brakes on things. Um, and, you know, as a community that's devoted to, you know, trying to help encourage people to uh, be able to mutually benefit each other, um, you know, and engage in productive economic activity and improve each other's lives, you know, certainly open engagement through 
through trade and discussion is something that we'd like to see be more the norm than this kind of securitized approach of, uh, you know, the Department of Defense first and the State Department uh, second that all too often I think we see. And that's kind of driven a lot of our uh, involvement as a community going back to some of the uh, for I think at least a decade with um, the Charles Koch Institute and now you know more recently with uh, other parts of the community like AFP and CBA. Yeah, just to tear it up to, to vision a little bit. I mean, there's, there's no, you know, for, for, for Americans, there's no bigger barrier to opportunity um, in trade than, than being at war with another nation, right? I mean, um, and even if we're not in a, in a declared war, I mean, for, for other people around the world, I mean, there's no greater opportunity to, to improving your life, no bigger barrier than a 250-pound American infantryman kicking in your door because he has bad information. Um, and we do that over and over again. Uh, I've been on some of those mistakes. Uh, so to create opportunity, you know, to, to, to better leverage our positions on trade, to, to create better relationships with communities around the world, uh, it, it's what we should do. And in terms of the, the dollars that are going to, you know, the, the amount of money we tr- spend to track down one or two or three terrorists in, in corners of Afghanistan and Syria, the, the number of troops that are deployed to do that um, is outrageous when commensurate with the level of the threat that's there, right? I mean, we're talking about people, yes, you know, 19 hijackers killed 3,000 Americans. But when you compare the, the opportunity cost to to you know, to continue to improve our military and to continue to develop our military against real existential threats like like a resurgent Russia, like, a, you know, an insurgent China that are really near peer or peer competitors in the future. And we're we're playing whack-a-mole in the Mideast with a couple of tens of thousands of troops there. That's a real opportunity cost and it's a real waste of the taxpayers' money. And that's, that's money that could be going to, to, you know, to better programs that, that the businesses and people that are being taxed to pay for those deployments could use to develop you know, their communities here in America. I think the, the bill is something like $6 trillion uh, plus now of the post 9-11 uh, wars that we've engaged in. And, you know, hold on. <clears throat> You're saying that we've spent $6 trillion on wars since 9-11. That is correct. And so that involves, you know, direct um, deployment costs and whatnot. But uh, you know, to bring in some of the, the VA aspects to this as well, it also uh, gets into questions of caring for wounded veterans and those, uh, you know, long-term care costs that come into play too. So, uh, you know, when we're talking about the full opportunity costs of, um, you know, military engagement in places that are of lower priority compared to these bigger threats that John's talking about, it's really a huge burden on American taxpayers. Yeah, and, you know, when... A soldier signs up to join the military, you know, we make promises to them. And it's very important that we as a country, you know, deliver on those promises. And one of those promises is, you know, caring for them after they leave um, the military. And those costs that Tyler was talking about, that $6 trillion number does include the fact that um, of the troops coming home from, you know, Afghanistan, Syria, about 50% of them are are applying for disability um, through the VA system. And that carries a very, um, you know, long-term cost to the American taxpayer when you do have soldiers coming home. Um, But those are also things that we promised we would deliver on. And so those are, you know, dollars that, you know, we have to continue to provide for them, um, you know, when they do come home. So there's just real long-term costs, not just, you know, in the immediate next year with troops on the ground, but also beyond that. 
Yeah. On top of that, the, not just the dollar, the economic cost to the taxpayer is the societal cost. I mean, when we're talking about these people who are coming back, you know, who are who are legitimately getting uh, disability benefits, you know, and disability ratings from the Department of Veterans Affairs, we're talking about people who are severely wounded, amputees, TBI, traumatic brain injury uh, diagnoses. We're talking about many, many, many tens of thousands of veterans who are diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, which... You know, as a veteran, I can tell you, we set, we signed up knowing that that was a potential um, that we could we could suffer, but we trusted that the American political elites would not sacrifice us to those to, you know to those demons to those to those afflictions unnecessarily, uh, and those afflictions are huge barriers to opportunity. Whether it's an amputee trying to get a job, you know, because you know he, he's got to get all of those accommodations and and you know all the psychological hangups that go with that, to just you know a, a a veteran suffering from PTSD who just struggles to get through the day every day. I mean, those are real barriers to opportunity that war and, and overdeployment creates. So the American political leadership really owes it to the American veteran, the American fighting man to get this right going forward. There, there are a lot of questions that I have. I want to go next to something that I could see being asked to someone working out in the field right now. Um, and that question is, so when should we go to war then? You know, if you, if you if you're saying all this, when do we even go to war? What what's the rationale there? How do we explain that? Well, we try to separate it um, into kind of four main categories, basically, um, and that, that's and this is not to say that you know we're complete pacifists. We definitely think that sometimes uh, when it's important enough, we should be ready to go. But we should be cautious about this. And so there's there's four main things. And, and the first one is, is there a, a vital national interest on the line? You know, are we looking at something like our, you know, territorial integrity maybe being under threat or, you know, some severe threat to our long-term conditions of prosperity with like major trade lanes being closed, something like that. And also another vital national interest of ours is, uh, you know, being able to protect our liberal democratic system at home. So is that severely under threat by a power that uh, could be able to coerce us in some way? Um, and so in deciding whether to engage militarily, we try to look at that first point, is there a vital national interest on the line? Um, the second point, is there a clear strategy to achieve the, this objective? And can we be able to do that at likely a reasonable cost? And then uh, I guess number three is, has it been congressionally authorized as the Constitution demands? Um, you know, and unfortunately, I think the last war we declared was World War II. Um, and so there have been, you know, various forms of moving away from that proper role in the decision making process. And then the last point that we try to say is, is there a clear exit strategy in place? to make sure that once we've achieved our original objectives of trying to go in, that we can get out. So my first thought is, how do we define what a national interest is? There are some um, that I've met who said that when Saudi Arabia became under attack earlier this year, that American troops should absolutely be used there because the oil is a national security interest to the United States, that, that those imports that come into America are vital to our way of life and they need to be protected. And therefore, if that, if that nation is under attack, that it is in our national self-interest, our national security interest to defend that country. How would you respond to that? 
interestingly enough, I think there's on, on the the Saudi Arabian case specifically, there's a lot of sort of just economic theory reasons to suggest that we are not super vulnerable from short-term oil shocks. I mean, you can look at just decade after decade going back in cases like the uh, 1991 Gulf War, the 1979 um, Iranian Revolution, and basically it these these sort of temporary supply shocks often give other oil-producing nations an incentive to um, ramp up their production, to cash in on the temporarily high prices. And so there's uh, an incentive to create uh, more oil, which then lowers the price long-term. So if we're thinking about um, a serious high stakes, you know, deployment of U.S. ground troops. I think we have to keep those factors in mind, and uh, you know, and I think this is another example of how this touches on other issues like energy policy. Luckily, we're in a position now um, where we're like the leading. Uh, the U.S. is the leading producer of of petroleum in the world, and so we're increasingly less reliant on situations like this to feel that. Um, you know, our conditions of prosperity would be vitally at stake in a situation like that. Yeah. Additionally, I think, you know, we have to look at Saudi Arabia, right? It's depending on how you, you count the beans, it's the second or third uh, most important military power in the Middle East. It's a major regional power. It has this, probably the second most potent air force in, in the Middle East. Um, you know, they, they're entirely um, capable of defending themselves under most circumstances from, from the regional actors who are a direct threat to them. Uh, the, the only real potential threat to them is the Iranians. And if it, unless it's a direct Iranian attack, I don't think we need to be in, in the fight at all. You know, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, whether it's, you talk about Libya in 2011, 2012, um, or, you know, Iran in, in 1978, 79, uh, the market is still the market. So whatever actor is controlling a sector of the market, a sector of the production, they still have to sell it on that open market. So how is it a direct threat if, if a different, you know, a different totalitarian theocracy is in charge in Saudi Arabia? How is that really a direct threat to us as long as they're willing to sell oil to – and, and they, they're not selling the oil to us. They're selling it to the Europeans and, the, and our Asian allies. They're not selling it to us anyway because we're pretty close to energy independent at this point with production at home. So basically what I'm hearing – and I'm being facetious here, but I want to put this out here. Basically what I'm hearing is we're a bunch of isolationists. Well, that could be further from the truth. I, I think that's an important common misconception to just head off at the, the path right now. Um, I think it's, it's, we certainly favor engaging with the world, building, um, you know, close relationships with countries um, and, and, you know, certainly promoting our, um, you know, liberal democratic values across the world. But it's a question of how we do that. And I think the difference in a more uh, restrained and realist approach is that um, you want to model your values rather than try to impose them um, in these sort of almost Wilsonian, referring to, to Woodrow Wilson and kind of his ideas in World War I of we have to go on a moral crusade and, and save the world for democracy and everything. Um, I think, you know, we favor certainly... Uh, you know, protecting those ideals, but but through a policy of, of modeling them at home and engaging with the rest of the world through trade and diplomacy. Uh, frankly, when we are too eager to uh, resort to military engagement as a, as a, a first rather than last resort, that undermines our ability to, uh, you know, diplomatically influence countries over the long term, gives us a bad name across the rest of the world. And particularly as we 
you know, continue to compete with uh, great powers like Russia or China when so much of the stakes are a battle of these competing mental models of, you know, what society and the role of government should look like, being able to uh, kind of model the principle of our visions in of our vision in our dealings with other countries, I think is just as effective in uh, helping, you know, protect those ideas we care about long term uh, as you know, zealous military engagement. I would say in terms of isolationism, you know, the, the, the classic examples of isolationism or, or you know, pre-World War One being against getting involved in World War One, pre-World War Two being involved against be, getting involved in World War Two. Um, and clearly, from a historical perspective, we would not be isolationists, you know, in, in those cases. In fact, you know, probably the greatest current outspoken example of isolationism is probably Pat Buchanan, who still thinks that World War II was a bad idea for America to engage in. So, and I don't think that anybody, you know, talking about foreign policy within our network and advocating these ideas believes that, right? We're not that kind of, of foreign policy thinker. We think that we should engage in the world. We believe that there are times when our national interest is threatened, that we should take military action. We just think we should be more restrained. There's a difference between restraint and isolationism. And restraint requires that you think before you act, that, that military action, particularly aggressive, invasive military action, is not the first tool that you use, um, or even the second or the third tool, unless there's a direct threat. And so I think um, a good example of this also, when we talk about Afghanistan, um, you know, at, at CBA and John and Tyler can probably jump in here and provide a little more um, color. But, you know, when we talk about Afghanistan, we talk about how our original um, mission there has been accomplished, that when we went into Afghanistan to de- destroy Al-Qaeda after we were attacked on September 11th, um, you know, when we talk about withdrawing troops from, from Afghanistan, we're saying that that part of our mission was accomplished and that we did what we um, said we were going to do there. And so then we are now ready to kind of withdraw from that and that that's not where we need to be in the world. And so I think that's another example where, you know, here we would say Afghanistan is a great example of, you know, how restraint needs to be applied, um, you know, long term when we're talking about military engagements. Absolutely. I think nobody denies that it was in our national interests initially to respond to the the worst direct attack on U.S. soil since Pearl Harbor um, after the fact. And, and you know, I think CVA and, and AFP and our, our broader community, we certainly believe that that was initially a justified response. And it's a question of the uh, proportionality and what, what are we trying to accomplish here? And so when we talk about the, the lingering mission, as, as Juliana said, that was you know, to to punish the government of Afghanistan for harboring Al-Qaeda um, and to, you know, degrade Al-Qaeda's capabilities severely to ever try to accomplish that again. And, and you know, with the death of bin Laden and the decimating of their senior leadership, um, that was clearly achieved. And I think all that was really needed to accomplish that first objective of the punishment and deterrence for, uh, you know, hosting a terrorist organization was to, you know, go in and do a initial punitive expedition and then leave. And the logic of staying longer than that is that, well, we had to ensure that Afghanistan never came under the Taliban's control again, because we never wanted to have it be used as a safe haven for terrorism again. And a little bit because kind of we owed it to the Afghanistan, the Afghan people to to try and create a better society for them. <clears throat> but the logic of the first two pieces is, is, you know, 
is clearly outdated if it ever made sense at all. So, you know, um, We've cost much, much, much more in American lives staying in Afghanistan for 18 years than we would have if we had, we had just kind of walked away in, you know, mid-2002 when, you know, we had accomplished 99% of the objectives that we had set out to do. Even if the Taliban came back, given the fact that they were decimated in, you know, six weeks by, like, literally a sprinkling of American forces, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, two light brigades and a, and a bunch of special forces over through the whole country in a matter of weeks. So the fact that we were able to do that so fast means that they probably were never going to go back to their bad behavior, even if they come back to, to, to power. And if they do in the next years, they've got the lesson that they really never want us back in their country in that kind of force again. So the, 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 the last piece, you know, that, that we owe it to the American, to the Afghan people to do this. Well, you know, we've given it a shot for 18 years. It's at some point it becomes time for people to get their own act together. Um, and it becomes incumbent on us to, to, care more about our people back home once again. Why are those resources being used to, to improve the lives of Afghan, you know, Afghanistan citizens uh, beyond what, what they were, not just 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but 30 or 40 years ago? I mean, you know, that country, um, you know, we, we did invade it and we did create some turmoil there, but that country's never been a stable, you know, democracy or bastion of Western civilization. It's, it's always had problems and, and we shouldn't be spending American blood and treasure to fix problems that have existed in that country for, for decades, centuries, or possibly millennia. You, you talk about opportunity costs, and I can't get that, that figure of $6 trillion out of my head. And I think about what that money could have been used for instead. Pay, Paying down a third of the national debt? May, yeah. Maybe. I mean, that would be good. But let's, let's assume it's still just, it's still just part of the, uh, the military budget. Even if we don't cut the military budget, and we can talk about that later if you want, but even if we don't, what kind of research could that have been used for? What kind of, what yep. kind of improvements could, have, could it have made? How many fifth-generation fighters could you have produced with that? How many Zumwalt-class destroyers could we have? Or, or nuclear submarines. You know. And, and yeah. just from a, you know, an old sailor's perspective, how many, uh, how many barracks or birthing areas could have been upgraded so they're a little more yeah. comfortable, right? I mean, or, or the human resources cost, which is one of the biggest components of military spending these days. You know, what it costs uh, to provide the training, the health care, the pension benefits and all of that. I mean, that's that's we don't talk about that enough, but that's one of the biggest pieces to, to military and defense spending is all the human resources personnel costs. Six trillion dollars would have gone to significantly reduce that, which would have also served to, you know, reduce the national debt or at least, you know, reduce the amount of deficit spending that we're going up every year. And then to think about the human the human aspect of, of the opportunity cost, what could the people we've lost, what could they have produced, what, you know, quality of life have they lost? Um, there's, a, there's a phrase out there that I keep seeing. I see it on stickers on some of our colleagues' uh, laptops. I see it all over the place. And it's the idea of endless wars. And I think that goes to point three. It was point three have an exit plan. It was uh, number four, but number yeah, four. You're, you're right. It's on the list. I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best. I'm doing my best. So um, we talked about point one. Let's talk about point four for a second. This is ending endless wars. What, what do we mean by endless wars and how do we define an exit strategy? The way that we look at endless wars and the reason we think of them in that way is that there's often this conception that we're lingering in them and, and, and staying engaged in fighting out of a sense of trying not to lose rather than having a clear objective to meet at all. And so in Afghanistan, as an example, I think it's long since since we've uh, you know gone after our original objectives there of uh, punishing the government of Afghanistan through, uh, through the Taliban and, and trying to decimate al-Qaeda 
that there are any clear reasons and objectives for for being there any longer at this point um we we are, are sort of staying out of a sense that it might be worse if the taliban takes control um instead of thinking about what the broader cost for america our uh, reputation with the world are and so when we think of uh this term it kind of comes down to this listless sense that we need to stay in some place for the fear of the alternative which you know goes against what we know from economics about sunk cost theories and whatnot um and so particularly in honoring the sacrifice that we're asking of our veterans uh you know we should be smarter than asking them to stick around in a place that's no longer serving a national interest and that there's not a clear objective that they can possibly achieve if you if you study military history the idea of complete and total victory over one's enemy is, is, is the exception rather than the rule, right? Conflicts, if you look at history, conflicts tend to unwind, to go on, to, to change, to shape, you know, whether it's the Hundred Years' War or the, the, the ongoing, uh, you know, 16th, 17th century conflicts between Great Britain and France. Great power competition really typically doesn't result in unconditional surrenders in complete victories like World War I, World War II. But the American people after World War II kind of got conditioned to this idea. So to, to make the facile comparison in foreign policy to the Vietnam War, you know, Afghanistan, <clears throat> like Vietnam, is a war where the inertia of, of generals and military leaders who just didn't want to be the one to say it's time to go home without a complete and total victory has led us to 18 years, the longest war that, that we've we fought in in Afghanistan. And again, if you look back at, you know, Vietnam, there was a moment with the Pentagon Papers that's being paralleled th this month with the release of, of a very similar document showing that, that generals, you know, have just kind of kowtowed to the political leadership in D.C. that didn't want to be the administration, the leader, the, the, the you know, the secretary of defense, the secretary of state who, who lost Afghanistan. So this has been been going on. And if you look at what happened in Vietnam, you know, there was a social psychological kind of moment there you know, in the 70s, the, the, the progressives, the, the those fighting for peace wanted us out as soon as possible. A great hunk of American society, more conservative, not politically, but just more conservative socially, you know, wanted that total victory and resisted getting out because of the hit to American reputation, to the hit to American, um, Americans, you know, kind of national psyche. Um, you know, we did have kind of the, the, the Carter era, great malaise. But if you look at what happened 10 years later, you know, you get to the middle of the Reagan decade in 1985, 10 years after the end of the Vietnam War. And, and the American people were happier that we were out of Vietnam. The Vietnamese people were happier that we were out of Vietnam. Our reputation within 10 years had, had rebounded. And we were clearly seen again as a leader, you know, in the free world, as a leader in the fight against communism. Um, and as a more realist one, because we kind of, you know, we focused on realistic objectives instead of on an enduring, you know, insurgency. Uh, so I think the lesson there is, you know, it's time for for folks in D.C. to kind of hitch up their big boy pants and say, you know, I'm not going to punt this decision to another administration to do the right thing and end this before any more damage is done. Because we're, we're now not we're not improving things We're we're staunching the bleeding without sealing the wound. Yeah. And um, something we actually haven't spent a ton of time talking about yet today uh, is when we talk about um, Congress authorizing war and, um, you know, the, we are in Afghanistan and Syria right now under um, an authorization that was passed in 2001. 
And um, right now in Congress, um, 90% of the individuals that have been elected did not vote on that um, because they've all, they're new, they're new people. And so they have not actually, you know, stepped up to the plate and assumed their constitutional role to say, okay, we should be the ones that are deciding where and when um, our troops deploy. Um, And that's something that, you know, we believe there needs to be a greater conversation about. It's something that um, we think that our elected leaders should be held, you know, accountable for. And it's something that um, when we are talking about these issues, we're saying, you know, there, there are checks and balances that are put in place, but right now, you know, folks are just simply not, um, you know, adhering to those. 90% of the people in Congress did not vote to go to Afghanistan. That I didn't right. know. Right. And, and not only Afghanistan, but that 2001 authorization for use of military force is also being used to justify our military presence, you know, all over the world. I think in the last two years, at least 14 different countries um, have had, um, you know, American troops on the ground um, under that 2001 authorization for use of military force. And so it's it's not just Afghanistan, it's Syria. That 2001 um, AUMF is being used there as well, um, as well as countries in Africa. Niger. Niger, yes, exactly. <laughs> Somalia, so Corn of Africa. We go on and on. And so, um, you know, that's something that we think there needs to be a greater conversation about. And, and because that authorization use of military force has been stretched so much, there's no sunshine, there's no transparency on those military operations, right? They're just kind of, the Pentagon just shoves them under that thing and the American people never get to see the rationale for having troops in Niger, for having a, a you know, and I don't think that there's necessarily not an argument for like CJTFO, right? For for having some special forces in the Horn of Africa because of what goes on there. But but let's have that discussion out in, in sunlight again, because, you know, after 18 years, I think the American people deserve to kind of, to hear what's going on there and make a decision once again, do we want to continue this or not? I mean, even if you're, so going back to my time working on, on Capitol Hill, if you're a member of Congress and you go to DOD and you ask, um, can I get a briefing on where U.S. troops are deployed around the world? Um, you can't get a straight answer on that question. Um, and so this is why we say this is, needs to be a debate. It needs to be a conversation. It needs to be something that the American people have greater knowledge about. Yeah. In fact, it's gotten worse over the last decade. If you won't go back to like 2008, 2009, if you picked up a copy of the Army Times, there was a map that at least gave you an idea during the during the the kind of the Iraq era, the, the the main Iraq era, where most of the army, you know, big brigades were if they were deployed overseas, and, and the, the Pentagon's just stopped providing that information even to them, so you, they no longer guess. Um, it's really hard to find out where you know it's 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 as hard now to find out where an army brigade is as it is to find out where a ship is in the ocean from the navy. And it didn't used to be like that. It used to be the PAO, which is the Public Affairs Office, would just tell you, oh yeah, you know the 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 third brigade, eighty second airborne's in Afghanistan, the first brigade, eighty second airborne's at you know in, in Somalia. They they would give that information out. Now they're very very tight with it. I think this this kind of blank check, basically, uh, in terms of you know legislative oversight on our foreign policies completely alien to what the founders intended in framing our constitution you know they knew that the war making power was too important to leave it to just one person you know within the executive and that's specifically why you know they wrote james madison you know writing uh about how uh you know the executive tends towards uh, centralization and, 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 you know, almost like autocracy long term. And that's why something as high stakes as whether we go to war and put our troops in harm's way needs to be, you know, influenced by the people's representatives, since those are the folks who are going to ultimately sacrifice. 
And the idea that, you know, the a, a 18-year-old AUMF can be, you know, invoked in more, well over a dozen countries. And uh, I think above like 35, maybe 40 times uh, since 2001 uh, is just completely beyond the scope of, I think, what anyone who voted on it could imagine it have have uh, having been used for. And so it's definitely high time that we transition to kind of a mental model in, in authorizing force where it's much more limited and focused on the specific objectives we're after and that those sunset over time so that these crucial periods for debate and transparency uh, can be accounted for. Yeah, the advantage of the sunset is that it forces Congress to discuss the situation again and again. Like it, maybe there is an argument to be in that country for for eleven years instead of just ten. But but after whatever the sunset date is, let's have that conversation out in public again. And that's like you know what we've run into in in Syria, for instance, is that Congress has you know been criticizing uh, the the president's withdrawal efforts, but they don't really have a credible leg to stand on here because they weren't uh, willing to make the case through debate that we needed to authorize an independent presence there to begin with. And so when we have these opportunities for debate, if it's important enough to be in the U.S.'s national interest that we're in a place like Syria or Niger or wherever else, you know, we can discuss it and they can make that case to the American public uh, as they have to for domestic programs. There are three, <clears throat> there are three things that I want to to talk about before the end of this. Uh, one is we've mentioned trade a couple times. I think there's there's a discussion to be had there had there, and I think uh, we need to talk about this idea that that our foreign policy position makes us anti-military. I'm seeing that also. Uh, but first, uh, before we before we get into that, I want to go into that next. But I, I would really like someone to explain. We, we've used the term realism and we've used the term restraint. And I really want to dig into what we mean by those terms. So if one of you could handle one and somebody else the other, I don't care how you do it. But what, what, what do we mean by realism? What do we mean by restraint? I'll do realism if you want. So realism is a foreign policy outlook. It's kind of the, the original foreign policy outlook. It goes back to Thucydides and the, the Greeks that says, essentially, um, there is no overarching international government, that all states, as we define them today, are you know, autonomous. They, there's no hegemon. There's no government over them. Each state gets to make its own decisions within, within its borders. It's sovereign within its decision rights, within its borders, within its zone of, of, of action. And that those states have interests that primarily, primary among those interests is their own security, the, the security of their borders and their peoples. They make decisions based on that. And those decisions typically lead to competition, particularly when there's a perceived threat. So within the, within the theory of realism, um, there's, there's a point at which if you arm yourself or act in your own security, you begin to threaten your, your neighbors or you can begin to threaten your neighbors. And kind of the, the typical metaphor that you use for the common man is, you know, if your neighbor owns a shotgun you probably don't feel threatened. But if he starts patrolling his front lawn with that shotgun, you might feel threatened. Um, and then out of that kind of mental model, there's the, the, the kind of conclusion that states are going to act within these own interests. They're going to do things like balance pa power against those that they perceive threatening them or align with those who could potentially threaten them before, the, they, before they do, which is, is, you know, that's balancing 
versus um, bandwagoning. So um, the, the the basic tenets of realism is that that the, the world is a threatening place, that the real threats come from other state actors, um, particularly the more powerful ones, and that you need to make decisions based on the way the world really is, not the way that you want the world to be. Yeah, we may not have to agree with our adversaries, but you know we owe it to ourselves in crafting effective policy to understand uh, how they think and the incentives they're likely to react to. So how about how about restraint then? So I think restraint is kind of more of a application of realism to the present, uh, in the sense that it is a presumption that. Uh, you know, a offensive military action may not be the best suited for any given foreign policy crisis. Um, and the reason I say sort of applied realism currently is that given the facts of where we are with our economic power and our limited resources uh, and the resources of our various opponents, uh, it behooves us to be conscious of prioritizing our threats to best serve our own national interests and people and to put ourselves in the best position to peacefully deter our greatest threats in Russia and China long term, rather than engaging in lower level uh, military interventions that aren't as a uh, high priority for our national interests, but that sap our strength longer term to be able to counter these bigger threats. So through a restrained view of foreign policy, it's your, 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 taking a more critical eye to whether opportunities for engagement really tear up to those highest priority threats that are worth uh, sending folks into harm's way for. So let's talk about the idea that uh, we are anti-military because I'm, I'm, I've heard those rumblings. Oh, well, you're first you're isolationist. And then I, then the second thing I hear is you're anti-military uh, and veteran, 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 uh, Weren't you military family military member? family yeah. member? Likewise, too. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, that seems kind of an odd, an odd point to attack us from. Uh, but how do you how do you refute that if you were out there and, and someone said to you 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 all are just anti-military? Well, you, I, you, it would be more like you libertarians. <laughs> <laughs> You're so anti-military. Well, I I would say that I understand it that that there has been a strain of anti-military language in some libertarian communications, if you talk to, to some people, who, you know, going back to the 90s and 2000s who, who were, but we're not. Obviously, veteran, veteran, we're, we'd be very hard to be anti-military. I, I would also say that, that you know, most, uh, whether, whether you want to talk about the Bush administration, the Obama administration, uh, you know, the, the, the Reagan administration, the Truman administration, um, any administration that uses military force typically ties patriotism to that use of military force in order to garner support, which makes it harder to argue back. But I'd also point to experience that that, that I've had over the last six months or so um, out in the field, working with the GLA trainers, um, giving the presentations that we have on foreign policy, giving uh, other presentations, um, and the feedback that we've gotten. We've even started to, to do some, some post-engagement surveying on it. Uh, and if you frame it up well, if you explain your, your point to people um, you know, articulately, they realize that you're not anti-military, that you're actually looking to protect our troops, that you're looking to use them only when it's absolutely necessary. And I've gotten feedback personally from, from you know, folks on the ground saying, you know, thank God you're talking like this. For the first time as a conservative, I feel like it's okay 
to to be anti-war, to to not want to rush to intervention. So I think I think you know when veterans come out and say, "Look, I'm not anti-military. I'm a veteran. I'm not anti-conflict. I believe in what I did, but we still need to." talk about how we do foreign policy. We still need to talk about how we intervene in you know, other countries' affairs when we do it militarily. And we still need to, to follow these, you know, these four points. That's a powerful message. And it's really hard to be anti-military when, when you're saying, I'm not against you know, using the military. I just want a clear and, and definitive path when we do it. And I want the American people to sign off on it through the people's house. I think it's easy for uh, most of our activists to understand, uh, you know, loving one's country and disagreeing with the policies that our government pursues. Um, and I think that's kind of a similar approach that we have within foreign policy of, you know, appreciating the sacrifices that our military has gone through. I mean, that's why Concerned Veterans for America named their uh, recent campaign Honor Their Sacrifice. Um, you know, certainly coming from the civilian perspective, but, you know, coming from a Navy family myself, um, that applies to me as well. But I think it is easy to separate um, the missions that we're sending our service members on and appreciation for the service members themselves. Yeah, and I think that's why we talk about the human cost of wars is, you know, we think that Veterans in the military community are, you know, really credible voices when we talk about why are we going to war and what are the consequences and what happens when those um, members come home to their communities and, um, you know, the visible and invisible wounds that ha- that happen. And so, um, you know, I think the, the veteran in the military community understand um, and are understand that that cost and can speak really well to questioning um, kind of the DC kind of foreign policy elite that say, don't question us, you know, we should be deploying troops here, here and here. Um, And, you know, they're the ones that are, you know, military spouses are the ones back home that are, you know, essentially functioning as single parents. They understand um, and should have the right to question, um, where our troops are deployed, and um, what our foreign policy looks like. Well, I think it's a natural instinct on the part of the American public to want to support troops, mm-hmm. right? And and part of that is you kind of got to you know, you know rationalize. So so from a from a being in the military perspective, you know, you know um, that when we when we do fight, right, our training is designed to help us dehumanize that target as much as possible, right? Mm-hmm. So you're not you know as a sailor when you engage an enemy ship, you're not killing other sailors you're destroying a target. Yep. You know, um, I'm engaging terrorists in, as an infantry guy. I'm, 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 you know, taking the fight to the enemy. I'm not killing another human being. Um, our social psychology works the same way, right? When, when, when we go to war, when, you know, when a, whether it's a president, you know, Roosevelt or, or President Bush takes us to war, um, the American people's instinct is to say, well, we're supporting our troops, right? These are our people. They, they must be fighting in a just cause. Uh, and, that's a tricky psychology, right? I mean, you know, again, we use the example of Vietnam. That was a place where it kind of got out of whack because of the way that war was initiated, because some people early on realized that there was something wrong with the way it was being executed. And it happened at a moment in history where that message just kind of got amplified in an echo chamber that was being created around other progressive causes. Uh, But again, we're not anti-war, right? We're anti-bad war. 
And um, we recognize that the American people can easily be co-opted into being pro-bad war by playing with their emotions. And we're trying to get them the facts. We're trying to get them to have um, a discussion where they understand the, the tenets of realism. They understand the tenets of restraint. They understand the cost-benefit analysis to, to you know, our economy, to our government, to our social structure of going to war. And then they, make a they, they help the people's houses make a decision based on that rather than just letting the foreign policy elites decide and then use, again, use marketing and social psychology to get them to support that war. I read an article just yesterday that talked about the, the trade restrictions that we're seeing now as being essentially an example of the modern war, that developed nations don't deploy armies to other developed nations anymore, that they go to war via trade restrictions. I've also heard that um, we, as an organization, as a, as a community, view trade barriers as an act of war. Could you speak to that and give me some clarity there on, on what our community believes? So I want to be careful not to speak for uh, Dan Pearson, our, our trade specialist, but certainly something that we've focused on in our foreign policy GLA trainings, for instance, uh, is that uh, sanctions are a you know aggressive, hostile action? Sorry, I should clarify. You know, sanctions are different from tariffs, but um, in the same vein as uh, restrictions on economic activity that you're putting on an individual or countries, uh, and we certainly see tariffs writ large <coughs> as a a you know unnecessary barrier on mutually beneficial activity that drives human society forward. You know, trade has been the single biggest driver of the reduction of poverty and the, uh, you know, I think we've, we actually, we're, we, you know, we've, you've seen the, the share of the world's population, you know, making uh, under a dollar a day and living in extreme poverty just simply evaporate over the past several decades as we've proliferated uh, trade agreements. And that's really been a miracle of the ending of the Cold War is that uh, these markets have opened up to facilitate uh, human progress and potential through these mutually beneficial interactions. Unfortunately, you know, tariffs and especially politically motivated ones because of some disagreement that might be going on between the governments of two countries, you know, harm people who have nothing to do with these disputes and are just trying to provide services for each other. Um, sanctions are a little bit more uh, often targeted towards industries or folks in question who may be more directly responsible for uh, a grievance that a country might have with another. But we still see these as you know highly disruptive, um, aggressive actions. You know, if China suddenly told uh, our banking sector that it was forbidden from investing in its country, we'd see that as a highly aggressive tool. And so uh, when it comes to something like sanctions, we try to take the view that this is, uh, you know, in the context of our GLA training, something that you'd put a yellow light on at an intersection. It's, you know, yellow means slow, doesn't mean never go, but it means think about it. And so if we're putting sanctions on a country, it better be for a very specific uh, reason and a very limited behavior that they can 
change, not just because we don't like their government, given the consequences that can unfold. I'd go back to the uh, to the kind of the to the way you frame the question and and talk about the language that you know, particularly the the word war and the way the word war has gotten stretched to kind of mean any conflict, challenge, struggle, or competition. Um, you know, when we talk about war in foreign policy, we mean war. You know, um, you know, and political science defines war as a, a military conflict where there's a thousand or more um, casualties per annum per year. Um, we mean either that or things very like it. You know, military conflict comes pretty close to that to that threshold. Um, when it comes to trade, you know, I, I don't think anybody in this network doesn't think that trade involves some competition. I don't think when we talk about openness and, and trade and removing barriers to opportunity, you know, I think we, we as, an, as a network, as a community, want America to succeed. I mean, it's what we're about. We're, you know, we're Americans for prosperity amongst other, other parts of our community. We really want America to succeed. Uh, and we recognize that trade is competitive. We recognize that trade has national security impl- implications, whether it's, you know, a, a national debt that, that threatens our economic power, which threatens our continuing military power, to the fact that, you know, that some of our near-peer competitors for influence in the world and for, you know, the the the, the, the pieces of prosperity, folks who, who would try to see it as a zero-sum game like China, like Russia, and take it away from us, are doing things like China's rodent belt program, um, you know, Russia's territorial aggrandizement again and its, its sphere of influence historically. Um, those are challenges, uh, but that doesn't make it war. And that doesn't mean that the way we act trade, uh, we enact trade policy is, is the same as war. And it doesn't mean that just because we're calling something a trade war means that it's the same as war. Now, like everybody else, I think, in the network, I think trade wars are bad things in and of themselves. They, they are barriers to opportunity. They are barriers to openness. Uh, but we really need to kind of kind of make sure that just because something has war or competition attached to it, that we're not saying it's exactly the same thing as w- war the way we talk about it when we talk about our foreign policy piece. But I think still, uh, it's, I agree, right? It's, 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 there's a clear difference between between uh, it's going to you know cost more to buy a product and your standard of living might be lower than you know we've sent a cruise missile to blow up <laughs> a factory or something um you know but i, I think we, we certainly see these as aggressive actions that should be uh disfavored at least as certainly as a first resort right there should be a clear reason to to pursue them We've spoke briefly about breaking barriers and about how war was like the <laughs> ultimate barrier. Um, and we've talked a little bit about the internal barriers <clears throat> that people uh, are facing after a war. Um, we've spoken a little bit about openness. Let's talk a little bit about the other mutually reinforcing principles. When you look at our foreign policy through the lens of equal rights, what are we, what are we talking about there? How do we frame that? Well, I think uh, particularly as, you know, so John mentioned the example, the, the Belt and Road Initiative, and this is, this is an a example of, of China exercising its soft power, uh, which is just a term for kind of how your country can influence others <laughs> through its, its uh, reputation and, and peaceful ties to those countries to achieve what they want. Um, and so... That's an example where China is flexing its soft power to build influence in uh, countries across the, 
across the globe and in some cases even with NATO allies like Italy. Um, and I think, you know, where China clearly falls short and what is holding back more countries from uh, maybe embracing them to our detriment is their quite obvious disrespect for their citizens' uh, rights. You know, you look at the Uyghur concentration camps, the uh, completely Orwellian social credit system, the way they've been treating uh, protesters in Hong Kong. And it's this completely dystopian uh, vision of the future, uh, you know, imagined in in Orwell or, or Huxley or other, other folks like that. And I think how uh, we're able to uh, counter that sort of authoritarian vision from the future coming out of places like China or Russia is to make sure that we're modeling uh, what the alternative looks like here at home and, and respecting the equal rights of our citizens and, uh, you know, acting in a way on the world stage uh, that shows that we respect those uh, with other countries as well. I think it's oh, go ahead, John. So please. I was going to say, there's a, I think there's a, a, another more domestic side to equal rights in, in the foreign policy priority, and I think that it ties to openness. But in the American system, we make decisions through elections and through a democratic processes or process, and and this means that that. You know, the issues should be open for discussion amongst the American people. Um, this is why we have elections. The topics that, that affect our nation's prosperity, our national security, are things that the American people should be kind of uh, talking about, and they should have alternatives. Um, and without an alternative theory of foreign policy to the one that's kind of been dominant for the last 20 years, um, you don't have equal rights between the, the folks out there actually who are, who are supposed to be the sovereign, the, the American citizen, who are electing officials who are making decisions because those elected officials are essentially punting to the bureaucracy, punting to the foreign policy elite and letting them make the call the shots without input from the American people. And that really means that there is a two tiered system there, that there's unequal rights between those who go to college for foreign policy, you know, join the military, work their way up to the to the ranks of general um, and kind of get together on a on a, you know, quarterly basis and decide where we're going with foreign policy versus the American voter who's really supposed to be the sovereign. So there's a divide between, you know, between the rights, the decision rights of those at the top who are not really consulting the people that they're supposed to be consulting. And those people really should have equal rights when it comes to how we do foreign policy. And, you know, this is also something that going to kind of add on to what John's talking about. We've done a pretty extensive amount of polling, actually, um, on this issue, because, you know, we recognize that a lot there's um a lot of people that are giving cues from Washington um regarding what people should believe on foreign policy and however you know when we start polling individuals uh, back home um in various communities we found that by and large um the american people support um kind of our perspective on realism and restraint they think we should bring our troops home from afghanistan they do question the amount that we're spending um, at the Department of Defense, they are saying, okay, what are we doing in Syria? Um, and, you know, they're with us on this issue. It's just not being reflected necessarily um, by their representatives in Washington or even by, you know, your average talking head that you're seeing on cable news. So how, how, does, a, how does a policy of realism and restraint then relate to mutual benefit? I mean, I think there would be some very clear ties, but I'm curious how you all see this. I mean, obviously, it's mutually beneficial if we aren't killing one another. 
right? But what else is there that's that when we think about realism and restraint through the lens of mutual benefit? One of the things that, that I've kind of seen, and it goes back to that trade question again, is being being involved in, in, in foreign policy and international relations, following it for, for decades now, you know, there's always this talk of American leadership, right? You know, we need American leadership on this issue. We need American leadership on this issue. And, and I thought about that a lot as, as, you know, we were building out some of the, the, the programs and, and, you know, and policy points that we've got this year. And that always tends to come from countries very much like us, Europe, some of the, some of the Asian tigers. Um, and they want this American leadership that looks out for their interests. But that American leadership, I think, does or that style of American leadership often does great damage to our reputation in places like Latin America, in places like sub-Saharan Africa, in, in other corners of Asia other than, you know, Korea, Japan, Taiwan. And we're giving up mutual benefit of having those countries see us as a preferred partner, having those countries see us as an honest broker. And there are mutual benefits to trade and to to openness and to to good relationships that we have like like just postponed for years because we pursue these these you know micromanaging kind of policies where we need you know the the government of you know of x nation to be exactly like this and we work so hard to do that that we offend most of the population and i'm not saying that like you know that the countries like venezuela aren't a problem in and of themselves but um but you know we've seen it over and over again in latin america at least part of the reason that venezuela has happened is that there's this perception that the americans are always coming in and trying to install these authoritarian governments on the right, uh, and you know whether that's historically accurate or not isn't the point. The point is is that to create mutual benefits with those countries and to have better trading relationships, if we can change the way that we're perceived there, and I think restraint and realism will do that, then we're opening up mutual benefits around the world, and I think the American economy can only benefit from more and more openness, more and more trading relationships. So there's a mutual benefits aspect. Um, to trading with the rest of the world, to, to engaging with the rest of the world in a more realistic way and being perceived less. I'm not saying we are a bully, but being perceived less as a bully by places like sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, and some of the more distant corners of Asia. I think the, the classic example here is Vietnam. I mean, you know, look at the the difference between uh, our relationship with them in, in 1975 and, and, and now. Um, Certainly, we wouldn't agree with the values of their government. Still, it's still, uh, you know, authoritarian and 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 you know, not liberal democratic by any means. But you know, we've we've been able to have a healthy relationship with them that you know involves you know trading, commerce, business, investment, and whatnot. And uh, you know, from a realist point of view, they feel quite threatened by China, and therefore are. You know, in some senses, these days, a, a partner of ours in deterring potential Chinese aggression. Um, this is not to say that, you know, we expect a place like Afghanistan or Syria to, you know, turn into this you know, great scenario where everything's, uh, you know, much uh, nicer than it was in, you know, 2005 or something. Uh, but I think it goes to show that you know, when we're only looking in the short term of what the immediate hits to our reputation or what might happen in a given country if we withdraw from an endless war, I think that's a, a short-sighted view of what the possibilities for the future are in uh, looking at 
our relationship with the country through how we can benefit each other. That's what's been able to happen with Vietnam. And I think that's how uh, we can view other countries increasingly more so through a, a, through a lens of embracing the possibilities rather than fearing the downsides. Yeah, that's a great example. I think one of the, one of the mistaken kind of mental models of mutual benefits that the, the liberal international um, model of foreign relations that we're typically operating under has is that mutual benefit means that you sign a long-term treaty um, that ties you to going to war for that country, uh, which means that you're actually not making a decision to go to war based on whether it's mutually beneficial or not. You've decided in advance that there's a benefit to it. Uh, but that that action could be dozens or, or you know decades of years in the future. And you don't know. And you think about like there are times where countries like Israel do things that are completely not you know, to the benefit of America or, 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 you know, South Korea. There are other countries who do things that are completely not to the benefit of our, um, our way of life, our security, our economy. Um, and yet we have these security guarantees with them. Whereas with Vietnam, right, there's this kind of ongoing, well, we always want you to be kind of at least leaning into the idea that you will help us manage our China problem. And because there's no formal relationship with there, there's much more of a discussion of mutual benefits than if we had just signed an agree agreement that, you know, any Chinese ship entering Vietnamese claimed waters automatically requires an American response. We've talked a bit about openness. Um, now we go to everyone's favorite, self-actualization. <laughs> when I think about self-actualization and foreign policy, I mean, at first, at first, I'm like, wow, what's what's the connection? But then it, it became, to me at least, very obvious that when you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the very basic needs of food, shelter, clothing, if we do not have a, a foreign policy that secures the ability to secure those most basic needs, we will never be able to climb towards self-actualization. So the foreign policy position that we have, a strong military that is restrained to being used when it's appropriate. Um, I think that allows us to have a society where we can engage, where we protect equal rights, where we can engage in mutual benefit, where we have this openness, where we can actually strive to self-actualize rather than being worried about um, who's going to invade or am I going to get drafted to go to a war in a place I've never heard of. But maybe there's an aspect of this that I'm not considering. So when you think about self-actualization and our foreign policy, what are the connections you all are making? I certainly think of, uh, in this sense, if we've, we've been talking a lot today about uh, various reasons why you know, we should be less likely to go get into wars that we don't need to, and that might leave uh, you know, folks with the impression that you know, we're not concerned about you know, protecting America or our safety long term. And I think, you know, it's it is the reason that we want to make sure that we are best equipped to secure America for the long term and maintain our position uh, relative to our biggest threats and great power competitors that we should be judicious about where we choose to fight. And it's in uh, taking a more restrained view and making sure that our military is best positioned to peacefully deter countries like Russia and China, that we are most likely to you know, maintain that safety in a way that doesn't compromise our values. And I think that's essential 
to enabling most people to be able to realize their full potential in life without the interruption of the unnecessary conflict conflagration of uh, war to interrupt that. Yeah, certainly, you know, being in the military um, and being afflicted is certainly a, a barrier to self-actualization, right? So, so the veterans who are, you know, whether they come home with just mild post-traumatic stress or they come home with, you know, with amputations, certainly their path to self-actualization gets much more difficult. But I would turn it on its head the other way too, you know, because it ties to self-actualization in that when we're seeking a society of self-actualized, you know, citizens, uh, that means that they're all educated um, and contributing to a path to prosperity, a path to mutual benefits, a path to equal rights. And, you know, unless a, a, a large proportion of them are informed and invested in how we're making decisions about national security, then we can't point to our society and say, this is, this is a collection of self-actualized individuals. Um, you know, there really is kind of a, uh, uh, just a, 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 a go with the, 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 the mass kind of mentality when it comes to foreign policy, you know, uh, unless there's something like a 9-11 or, or a Pearl Harbor, um, typically the American people just kind of softly express their opinion about foreign policy and go about their, their daily business, unless there's some real interruption to their lives. So I think to turn it on its head, you know, we can measure self-actualization by the, by, in our society by the influence that the average citizen is having on foreign policy. And I think that if the average citizen is having a healthy, informed, um, you know, kind of investment into our foreign policy decision-making, then, then, th then we're going to see a lot of realism in this rate. We have covered a lot of ground in the past hour and 10 minutes, and yet there is always that uh, Rumsfeldian fear that I have at the end of these. Uh, what is there that I don't know I don't know? And so the question I try to end with is, what have I not brought up that I should have? What have we not talked about that we need to? Is there anything? Because we've covered restraint. We've covered uh, realism. We've covered the vision, the mutually reinforcing principles. I mean, maybe we've got it covered. I think the only point that immediately comes to mind for me is just going off a little bit on uh, what Juliana was saying is that I think um, our citizens don't realize how much power they have to influence our foreign policy for the better. And it's been, you know, really exciting to see John's work in uh, Grassroots Leadership Academy helping educate our activists about the impacts they can make in, you know, changing the political incentives for their members of Congress, uh, helping educate their neighbors on, you know, what a more responsible foreign policy path forward looks like, and how um, we can ensure over the long run that our decision makers, you know, have to be more accountable and in line with what uh, the people whose lives they're putting on the line actually want. And I think it's it's something just a key takeaway from this should be, you know, as we're having all these discussions about uh, theory and worldview, that at the end of the day, you know, our activists uh, have the ability to influence these changes themselves. Yeah, I would say that the kind of the one thing that that I would I, I don't know that it's a unknown uh, unknown, um, but 
what I'd want to hear coming out of this if I was listening on the other end is, is okay, what next? The how. Um, how do we do this? Um, so suggested next chapter might be having Nate and Kelly in here <laughs> to talk about how this all <laughs> turns into rubber hitting the road in 2020. That sounds pretty good. <laughs> Let's do that. Watch out for that bus, guys. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this installment of Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. If you have any questions regarding today's top priority, please email them to me at toppriority at afphq.org. We'd love to answer them in an episode of Frequently Asked, a short podcast where we answer the most frequently asked questions regarding our priority initiatives. And if there's an aspect of today's priority that you want us to discuss further, let us know that too. Until next time, I'm Dwayne Lester, and thanks again for listening.